One of the things that, that sometimes I think a, a lot about is just what we do as a church uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, one of the things I, I like to tell people when they're just coming to visit us is kind of who you see is, is who we are, and that's what we're going to keep doing is we will worship, we'll pray, we'll, we'll preach God's word, and then hopefully we have time to get to know you, get to interact, get to, to be involved in your life. And I realize that's not every church. Other churches, they're going to be for, focused a little bit more. Uh, maybe you could uh, call them a little bit more performance end, or you could be a little bit more traditional end. There, there's all sorts of different kind of ways church can look, especially in that one hour a week. Sometimes we get wrapped up into what that looks like, and we come to walk away from that thinking, well, I didn't really like that message, or I didn't really like those songs, or I didn't really like what they did, and it becomes a little bit more preference-based, and now we get into what do we like or dislike, and we can sometimes fall into some traps of just finding things that we like or, or fits us in that moment. And, and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but these are questions that we kind of think about. I kind of process that. And uh, ultimately, I would want church to be so much more than just what happens on a service. It's about a, a community, about families, a families joining. It's about what's happening at the home. One of the things that's always been a, a struggle for me is to be able to see families that doing really good or look really good, and then you get a chance to talk to them behind the scenes, and you find out they're not really doing so well. And it always breaks my heart because we don't want those things to be going on. We want things to, to, to be uh, about a, a, just a, an authentic relationship that, hey, if you're struggling, it's okay you're struggling, but just be honest about struggling. Be, be genuine about the struggle. Don't, don't try to hide it or pretend because that just compounds or makes things even worse on top of that. You know, sometimes I think about Sunday mornings and I think about the service and I think about church and sometimes I realize we take something that's good and we end up making it a burden. We're really good at that. We're really good at taking something that was genuine or what began something good and then we add extra stuff onto it and we end up making it feel something totally different than what it was supposed to be. What do I mean by that? Well, think about what the Pharisees did even with the Sabbath during Jesus' time. They took this thing that God had intended for man and made it a burden that they heaped upon other people and they propped themselves up because they felt they were good at observing the Sabbath and they were more righteous with that. Jesus came and he reversed that idea and he reminded them the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In fact, God's intention of even the Sabbath was it was a time of thankfulness and joyful celebration. And again, it seems like us, and I'm going to use us in a generic, general sense of American church, have turned the, church, the Sabbath into a one-hour church service that's defined by styles and preferences and performances of, of worship leaders or pastors or people at the church. We smile, we greet each other, we, we, we laugh, we, we, we say a few things, then we go on and we live our day. We never think about church or we never think about what does this look like. This morning we're going to dive into a psalm, it's found in 92, that is actually geared towards thinking about worship and the Sabbath. In fact, this psalm is often sometimes used in more traditional churches as a call to service because it's so emphasized on the Sabbath. But I think, again, there's more to it than just what takes place on the Sabbath, that there is something about a lifestyle 
that we as, again, we as the church, the body of Christ, not just the gathering, not just an hour of service, not just what happens in this building, but we as the church, when we live our lives this way, I believe that this is what God or the psalmist is getting at. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 92. We're going to look really at the first four verses this morning. It starts out and says, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High. I love the simplicity of the psalmist just by saying, it is good. It is good. It is good for us. It is good for the psalmist. It is good for humanity to think about God, to sing praises, to say thanks. In fact, you see a lot of the parallelism that we've seen in the psalms in this psalm where it uses two things to say the same thing, give thanks and sing praises. Both of these are intended for us to be reminded that it is good that we do this. It is good that we gather and sing praises to God. It is good that we give thanks to God. It is not only good when we gather, but it is good when we live our lives regularly throughout the day in our everyday spaces to give thanks and sing His praises. That is good for us. Why is it good? Well, God is the source of good, and so it would be good for us to think of the source of good, right? If God is good, then it would be good for us to think about God and His goodness. Not only is it good for us but because of God's goodness, but it's also good because it, we can learn how to handle our own circumstances. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the future glory to come and he compares it to the present sufferings. And he uses the analogy of, of, a, of a woman giving uh, childbirth. And the fact is they don't remember as much the pain and the suffering because of the joy that is to come. And the joy of the child supersedes the present suffering that they're going through. And so Paul tells us the present sufferings, they're real, but they don't compare to the future glory to come. And so it's good for us to think of God and to think of his goodness and to give thanks and sing praises even in the midst of present day sufferings. It's also good to think of God because God erases our shame. So one of the things I was saying in the very beginning, we hide our shame, we act like everything is good, everything's fine, but we don't want to reveal our shame because our shame causes us to be embarrassed. It causes us to, to, to feel something is wrong or that we disappointed or that we screwed up and we want to cover it up, we want to hide it. We want to erase it, but we can't. And so therefore, we put it in the closet. We hide it underneath the rug. This is what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, right? They realized they were naked and felt ashamed. I was reading this week, and it really was uh, just kind of caught me off guard. I never really thought of it this way, but it's pretty amazing to think that when Satan came and tempted Adam and Eve, he offered them a bite to eat from fruit. And he promised them that they would know things of God, and yet it was a lie. And it entered into sin and death and the shame. And all throughout humanity, all throughout the scriptures, all throughout our own history, we've been struggling and wrestling with this guilt and shame that we have. People that are, are doing things are hiding it and, and, and wanting no one to discover it. And we make up lies and excuses and we put on these masks and these face because of that shame. 
Yet what are we to look towards God? <clears throat> what are we to think about Jesus? Well, just as much as shame and guilt and death entered in because taking a bite of a fruit that Satan offered, Jesus comes onto the scene. And what we're going to celebrate, even in fact, a little bit later within communion, he, he sits his disciples down, and right before he offers up his body as a sacrifice, he demonstrates to them this remembrance of the Last Supper. And what does he tell them in that? He says, come, take, eat of my body, and you will receive the gift of salvation. Satan offers a bite of an apple and brings to death. Jesus offers a, a, a bite or, a, 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 you know, to eat of his body in a, in, a, in a figurative sense of saying, take of my sacrifice and you will now have life. You see, this is the goodness of who God is, that he takes away that shame. Yeah, we have all of our skeletons in our closet, but the shame does not stick with us because of the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus says, eat of my body, take of my sacrifice that I offer to you as a free gift, and you will now be part of my family. And in my family, there is no condemnation. There is no shame. And this, this, this goodness that, that should bring us to a sense of singing of his praises and giving thanks to him all the days of our lives. I mean, how many days of our lives should we not give thanks to God because of the shame he's taken away from us? Zero, none. Every single day we should celebrate that. We should bring about the joy and, and, and the thanksgiving because of this shame-freeness that Christ offers to us just by offering his life to us. The psalmist uh, <coughs> writes in another psalm, he says, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none of you wait shall be put to shame. In, in all of this, he, he's talking, there is no shame that the enemies can heap upon you that God has not taken away. And so when Paul said that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, he, he was declaring that victory over Satan's accusations. There's nothing that Satan can say that can, that can stick to us. And I know for a lot of us, that's a struggle. That's hard for us to believe in it. Yet we can trust it because it's from what God has deemed as good and then can lead us to give thanks and to be able to sing of his praises. The psalmist goes on and he says why he gives thanks <coughs> and sings of his praises to be able to declare the steadfast love in the morning and the faithfulness by night. Again, you see this parallelism of morning and night so that there is uh, no time in between. There is no uh, place where we shouldn't do this. He's doing it morning and night. And he, what is he doing? He's declaring God's character. And because it's God's character, there's no time off with God. It's not just what God did for me. It's not just the works of God, but it's the actual nature and character of God. And what are the two things? It's this steadfast love that the Hebrew word uses in the sense of a covenant love. And if we know the difference between a covenant love and a contractual love, a contractual love, we, we pay for a service and the service is, is then rendered. A, contra a covenant love is to say, I give this to you, and this is my duty, my part, regardless of what your part and what your duty is. 
And so God gives his covenant love to us, not based upon us, not because we rendered some service that we deserve it, but because of the nature and character of God, he gives that to us. In fact, that's the only way we come to know Christ as our our Lord and Savior. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the only way. It's not because we've cleaned ourselves up. It's not because we've reached some level of education or theology. It's not because we've done so many good things in our lives and the scale tips in our favor. It's all because of the nature and character of God. And the psalmist says, this is why I rejoice. This is why I sing day and night. This is why I give thanks. And not only his steadfast love, but then his faithfulness that keeps us in that love relationship. God is the one that's faithful, not us. You will not live up to the standard of faithfulness that is of God because we, we are, are not God in that. We are fallible. We are, are, are creatures that are wanting to choose our own way and turn our own direction. And yet God's faithfulness stays to us. That's the, some of the beauty of the underlining of the entire Old Testament. Israel screwing up, screwing up, screwing up. God being faithful, being faithful, being faithful. All these are brought together into the beautiful picture of who Christ is. I mean, think about even Christ and the way that he treated the disciples, the love that he had for them. (laughs) These disciples were ordinary people, and they didn't get it. They spent three years with Jesus, and they still at the very end didn't have any clue what Jesus was really, really doing. I mean, it it helps us a little bit, right? Gives us a little break. Like, hey, if I spent three years with Jesus and still didn't get it, maybe I'm not going to always get it right all the time. And it should help you a little bit in your parenting too because your kids might not always get it. Because I know for one fact, you aren't Jesus. And and if the disciples didn't get it, spending that time with Jesus, maybe maybe your kids aren't quite going to always get it all the time too. And that's okay. That'll be all right. This picture of Jesus demonstrates his love and faithfulness to us. And in these moments, the psalmist says, I will sing of these and I will give thanks to these. But now he takes it even further. It's not just with his mouth, but now it moves into his hands. And in this point, he talks specifically about the instruments, taking these instruments and creating a melody with that. Again, I have no idea how to do that. (laughs) You give me an instrument and I will figure out where do I hit the play button to play it because I can't figure that out. But there's something about playing instruments that even without words can be brought up here and bring honor and glory to God in their melody. And not only the instruments that are used, but it's now this idea that there's something more that's happening than just our mouths, that these instruments are created or used to create beauty that brings honor to God, that that worship extends beyond just what we say. It moves into our hands. And I think you can extend not only what the psalmist says here, but look at the entire scope of Scripture when Paul even says in Corinthians chapter 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That your giving thanks and singing praises to God is evident in all the things that you do and all the actions that you do. That, that it's not just what you say, but it's actually in what you do can bring the worthiness of worship to God. 
so that you who goes to work and, and everyone else that's working around you does the bare minimum just to get by for the day, just to get the paycheck for the day, you can sit there and you can say, I'm going to work wholeheartedly as worship to God for the goodness of who he is. And that I'm going to let my instruments, and your instruments might not be the musical ones that are up on a stage, or your instruments might not be the ones that, that maybe necessarily create what is considered your idea of beauty, but it can be beautiful in the fact that you create it as a way of giving thanks and singing of the praises of God. That just like James, when James said, faith without deeds is dead, our, our, our praise to God without the follow-through, I think, of our, of our actions, without the follow-through with our hands, being able to worship and praise Him, falls short of what the psalmist is getting at. The psalmist is saying that every part of me wants to bring praise and worship to God. And if it's the musical instruments, then so be these musical instruments. Be in a way that the harmonized, so it's there's beauty and glory to God because He deserves it. Verse 4, he says, For you, O Lord, <coughs> have made me glad by your work. At your works, your hands, I sing for joy. Again, you can see this clear parallelism between makes me glad and sing for joy. It's almost the same thing as giving thanks and singing of your praises in verse 1. And not only that, but then in verse 2, as much as it was about the character and nature of God, of his, of his love and faithfulness, now the psalmist goes, it's also in the works of God, by your work and by your hands. And so as the psalmist says, these two things go together, the nature of God and the works of God so go together, my words in verse 1 and my actions in verse 3, they are the only rightfully follows because of the goodness of the works of God. And I've seen them by my own eyes, his hands at work. For I delight in what God has done. That God not only is by nature and character this, but by what he does. And so we need to take the time. And that's part of what the joy of the Sabbath was intended for, is to take time to, to remember and recognize the good works that God has done in your life. That there should be almost like the Israelites in the, in the way that they would put the stones in memorials of what God did in certain locations. We should have that in our lives where we should know the good works of God. That, hey, God showed up when I needed him here. God did this when I thought there was no other way. God moved me from this point to that point. God is working in my life. We should know those and celebrate those and give thanks for those things. And if you struggle to remember those, if you don't know those or have those in your life, then just walk outside and look up. <laughs> look at creation. Look at the, 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 the works of God and the, the order and structure of the universe and the very air that you breathe and the fact that you have breath in your lungs as God's work in his hand. And it goes to his character, to his nature, and that gives us ability to give thanks and sing his praises and make beautiful music with our hands or whatever our work may be. You see, all these things, they're, they're connected. They're all together. There isn't a separation of those things. We so often think, well, I just want to do this or I just want to do this. And God is saying, no, it's a combination of both. It's faith and deeds. It's, it's singing and it's my hands. It's God's nature and his work. All these things working together make God worthy of his praise, of our praise to him. 
We don't really have the full time to look at all this psalm. It continues on, and if you have a chance to look at it, you'll see a lot of familiarity of Psalm 1 in the next section, talking about the man who's foolish and the man who rejects this to the wise man and, and what happens to, to the same thing. Psalm 1 talks about you know, where you plant yourself and the roots and the tree and produce fruit versus the chaff and, and being blown away. But, but I want to highlight the very end of this chapter where it picks up in verse 14 and 15. It says, They still bear fruit in old age. They are never full of sap and green to declare the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. I, I, I highlight this because it shows the longevity of life. <clears throat> and as we grow older, we continue to bear fruit as we discover and know that God is who God says he is. Now, some of you have been Christians for a really, really long time, have evidence that God has been faithful to you over a really, really long time. You have a wonderful ability to share that goodness of God, that, that he isn't just a flash in the pan. He isn't just a, an emotional moment. He isn't just something that is here today and gone tomorrow, but he is faithful and con, con, uh, consistent, and his covenantial love remains the same. I know it's not fun talking about getting old. None of us like that. I mean, this past summer or this past few weeks, I was in the DR playing basketball against 18, 19-year-olds in 95 heat. And they started playing me man-to-man -man full court. And I realized I'm not as young as I used to be. I looked at my son, who, who, who is 22, and I gave him the ball and said, good luck. You bring it up the court. I mean, I, I can do all right when I get closer to the basket. But that 95, four feet, someone in front of me, I, I'm, I'm not very good anymore. We all get old. Our eyesight gets worse, our hearing, things start falling and drooping and wrinkles and all sorts of not fun things. But the joy can come in that is that as we grow older, we can testify to even more of the goodness of God and his faithfulness to us. I mean, one of the things that I pray as I get older, I don't want to come become more bitter or cynical. I don't want to look at the, the generations behind me and start telling them all the wrong things about them and all the things that they should have done according to what I think is right. That I want to be able to say, as I get older, I have found more joy, more thanksgiving, more gratitude in the love and the faithfulness of God. And that his works are good and that with my mouth and with my hands, I want to declare the goodness of God. You see, this, this gratitude and worship and joy, it'll carry us through our years and we'll be even more fruitful even into old age. And I just want to celebrate that about God. And the psalmist finds something about his connection to this thankfulness and this joy and this worship that is coming corporately as we gather, but also individually as we go about and as he uses his instruments and his hands to declare God's nature and his work, it will, it will carry him through those moments. It'll produce the fruit even in older age and that we can all age well. Even if you're in middle school, and you think you have the rest of your life ahead of you. 
You can even age well from how old you were or how wise you were as a 12-year-old to a 13-year-old to a 14-year-old to a 15-year-old. Because as what we realize, not everything is promised to us. And as you age well and as you get older, as you go into being a young adult and then you go into the middle ages and then you go into retirement ages, every age, as we age, we age older, we age well because of the goodness of God and be able to say, God, you are faithful. God, you are trustworthy. God, your love has never been contractual. It's been always covenantial with me. All of this is the ability for us and that it is good to declare the Lord is good. It is good to declare the Lord is good. And so let this be a lifestyle choice, not just a one hour a week decision you make just to come and whatever your church does is what you do and whatever preference you like or whatever style you like is where you go, but it's a lifestyle that you live declaring who God is both in character and his work, both with your mouth and with your hands so that we can age well and declare the faithfulness and love of God is true and that is good for us.